Good morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 12 as we continue this series this summer in the Psalms. Uh, We will finish it up next Sunday. Pastor Kyle will be preaching on Psalm uh, 13, and after that we'll begin a series on uh, 1 Peter. But today we are in uh, Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now rise, says the Lord. I will place him in safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This psalm is particularly preoccupied with speech. In the psalm we hear three voices. Uh, We hear the words of the wicked, the words of the Lord, and the psalmist's response. We'll consider these three voices and and give some thought to the implications to our life together here in the local church. First, consider the words of the wicked. In In the movie Forrest Gump, the main character played by Tom Hanks was asked several times if he was stupid. Forrest replied, stupid is as stupid does. In other words, we should be judged uh, not by our appearance, but by our actions. In a similar way, sin is what sin does. The unrighteous are identified by their unrighteous behavior. Sin flows from the human heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These actions and the motivation from which they spring speak to the spiritual state of a person's heart. 
who they really are on the inside. From our heart flow the actions and the words that we speak. So this morning, ask yourselves, do my words edify? Do my words give life or do they tear down? What did Paul say in Ephesians 4? Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only that which edifies and fits the occasion so as to give grace to those who hear them. Now, that doesn't mean we can't say hard or difficult things. But as Christians, when we speak, how should we speak truth? In love. Our words say something about who we are and what is the condition of our heart as it relates to God and to unrighteousness. Again, it was Jesus in Mark 6 who says, No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and, and nor grapes from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of their heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our heart animates our life. It directs where we go, what we do, and the things that we say. And here in our psalm, the author, King David, feels surrounded by those who use words not to speak truth, but to advance their own evil agenda. How do they speak? Verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. The wicked lie. They, They speak falsehoods. They play with words and distort the truth. They are insincere. Uh, The wicked, they flatter. This goes beyond insincerity, but rather it, it, it indicates that they speak to get something for themselves. They deceive and perhaps even cheat. That one seems pretty innocent to us, doesn't it? Flattery. What's the big deal? Jude, verse 16, connects God's final judgment on the ungodly with those that are, quote, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's the idea of arrogance and flattering. In fact, the New American Standard, does anyone still read the New American Standard Bible? That was the, my preferred version. Who has it? Oh, a few of you. Awesome. Um, It says this, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. 
or the NIV translation. Who has an NIV? Let's be fair. Okay. Hey, good number. Uh, the NIV translates it, they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Flattering all of a sudden doesn't seem so innocent, does it? The wicked lie, the wicked flatter, the wicked are double-hearted. Uh, saying one thing when really they mean something else. It's about double speak, or maybe even about spin. We see it everywhere, don't we? It's in our advertising, it's in our politics. Every politician says, God bless America, doesn't he? Whether they mean it or not. Every news network's pretends to be objective when each has its own particular bent and intentional interpretation. Their purpose? News as entertainment. To gain more viewers so they can charge advertisers more money. has nothing to do with truth. Now, it's not wrong to make money, but it's the seeming insincerity of it all. I always find it amusing when, when a, a, a news pundit changes networks, and overnight their views seem to change instantaneously. Now, I'm not picking on business people or news networks or politicians. I use them simply because they're an easy target. Uh, what they do is so obvious to us. But we, the fact is we live in this culture of hypocrisy. It's in the air that we breathe, and it's hard for it not to affect us in some way. We begin to just kind of assume that's the way things are done. What's, what's sad is that when we listen either to the news or politicians or advertising... We expect a certain amount of dishonesty, don't we? That's just a given. And isn't that unfortunate? It's a sign of a decaying society. And we buy into the spin, and we play the double-speak game as well sometimes. We don't speak truth but we say either what we want people to think or what we think they want to hear. But the words of the wicked are not the biggest problem. They're simply an evidence of the heart of those people. Our words are a fruit. Our actions and our words are a fruit of what's going on in our heart. The most basic problem, the more serious problem, is pride. Look at verse 4. With, uh, it's quoting the wicked. With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Think of that first proposition. With our tongue we will prevail. 
We will win. Deceit is okay as long as we win. The ends justify the means. Or think of the second proposition, which in a certain sense claims autonomy. Our lips are with us, meaning we do what we want. My words are my own. I am a law unto myself. I will determine what is true. Or the third proposition, who is master over us? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is assumed to be no. No one. No one is master over us. We are accountable only to ourselves. We are the final authority, and that statement, at least the minimum, is a functional denial of God. The unrighteous are full of pride, and they think they can do whatever they want with impunity. It's all going to be okay in the end. But there is a frightful day of judgment coming. When everyone, the wicked and the righteous, will bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. We who are in Christ will do it with joy and celebration. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. The wicked will confess but they will do it in fear and dread, sorrow and regret. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you are here, you can acknowledge your sin. You can turn from it and turn to Christ and be saved. And ultimately, that's the only message I have for you this morning. Because that's the only message you need this morning. You don't need to clean up your act. You need to acknowledge that you're messed up. Believe the gospel, and God will clean up your mess. He will change you. He will make you a new person, He will give you a hope. And the rest of your life, He will be with you. Conforming you to Himself. So examine your heart. Examine your life, your words, and determine where you are in relationship with God. God cares about how we speak. And why wouldn't he? He's the one that created speech. We think that our words belong to us. But that's just the pride of the wicked. 
The reality is that our words belong to God. The origin of human language is not something, uh, simply something we developed. The capacity was given to us by God. God Himself spoke the world into existence. And then He spoke to humanity to give us meaning and to give us purpose. Think back to Genesis 1 in the creation. On day 6, verses uh, Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, it's day 6 of the creation, and God says, Uh, uh, that he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, both male and female. He created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Language is created And it is a gift from God. Not primarily so that we can speak to each other, though that is a blessing of language. God gave us language so that He could speak to us. We could hear Him, we could understand Him, and therefore we could know Him. He tells us who we are and what we are to do. Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. We were created in His image, meaning we were created to reflect God's character to the rest of creation. We reveal God's goodness and faithfulness as we extend His rule over the earth, as we subdue it. And so as image bearers of God, our language should reflect how God speaks. And how does God speak? What are His words like? Look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Silver refined seven times is completely pure. It's actually, in a sense, purer than pure. Everything God is He is holy and righteous. His word must be as well. His word is always pure. And His word is always true. And when God speaks, we can trust and believe Him. Now, when I talk about God's Word, I'm not speaking about something nebulous and abstract out there. What I have first and foremost in my mind is His Word in the Bible. 
Because this is God's Word. Now, I'm not discounting the work of the Spirit in us in this contemporary age. The Holy Spirit resides in us, and the, and the Spirit does speak to us. But when someone says, I believe that God is saying to us, what are we to do? When you hear those words, what do you do? You evaluate it. Is this from God or is this from man? And what is the standard by which we evaluate everything? God's Word. The Bible. That is the standard and that is our final authority. Anything that is not true to Scripture is automatically rejected. The Bible doesn't just contain the words of God. It is the Word of God. It doesn't become the Word as God speaks to our hearts as we're reading these words. It is objectively God speaking to us. I graduated from Messiah College. And the year after I, I graduated, uh, I was heading, uh, not to Messiah, I was heading to Geneva, the first school that I went to for homecoming. And I stopped at Messiah along the way, and I was speaking to a friend who was a, a pastoral ministry student. And somehow we got talking about the Word of God, and, and he told me, uh, and this was something he was being taught in class, uh, that parts of the Bible are inspired and parts of it are not. Now, uh, someone saying that today wouldn't surprise me, but at that time, that was the first time I had ever heard someone actually say those words. And I was a little confused. The problem is, well, what I said to him is, how do you know? How do you know which parts are inspired and which parts aren't? How do you make that distinction? And if we get to make that decision, if we're the arbiter of what is true and what is not, then what is the final authority? It's not the Word of God. It's us. And if we're the final authority, we're in serious, serious trouble. Because then there is no truth. That's, that's, that's our society today, isn't it? There is no truth. We all get to decide what's true. And what has it led us to? Chaos. There is a Word of God, and it is true. I think what I say is true and right. If you know me very long, you know I have opinions. And I'm not afraid to tell you that I'm right and you're wrong. But those are just my opinions. This isn't about opinion. This is what God says it is. And Paul tells us in God's Word, God is speaking through Paul. And in 2 Timothy 3, it's a well-known verse. We've all read it before. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 
And because it's breathed out by God, it goes on and says, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, may be perfected, equipped for every good work. The Bible is what we call the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace, the Bible, prayer, and the church, are those things that are given to God by God to all believers in all times as the means by which the Spirit grows us in our faith. God can give us different gifts and different experiences, and He does. And we can thank God for those. But everyone's experience of God or gift from God is different. And so those are not called the ordinary means of grace because they're not universal. We all have spiritual gifts and we all have experiences, but they vary. The ordinary means of grace are eternally true and faithful. And so that's what His Word is. God's words are true and God's words are faithful. We are created in His image and recreated in Christ Jesus to be what? His ambassadors, to represent Him. And so, we need to ask ourselves, do our actions and our words and our attitudes and our motives accurately represent God? That's the standard to judge ourselves. Do our lives, do our words, actions, and motives represent, reflect who God is? Wicked words, the words of the Lord. What is David's response in our psalm? Look at verse 8. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Like many of the psalms, in the end, the circumstances don't change, do they? David's still in a wicked world, surrounded by wickedness. The wicked are still lying, still flattering, still deceiving and boasting. None of that has changed. But David's heart, his attitude has changed as he has set his sights on his Savior. And David remembers the words of the Lord that they are always true and they are always pure. And so he rests in who God is and what God has promised. Verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation, this wicked generation, forever. 
The wicked are around him, and they're still around him, but David is confident that the Lord can and will preserve him. And so he rests and trusts in him. Just one more fairly lengthy observation. I didn't want to get you too excited that we were at the end. And it's sort of an implication of verse 1 of our psalm. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Verse 1, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. David feels overwhelmed by the wickedness around him, so much so, it seems like he feels like he's the only righteous one left. That sense of isolation from others who share his faith in God seems to intensify his struggle. It's like Lot who lived in the areas of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Genesis 18 tells us there weren't even ten righteous people in those cities. And Peter tells us in his second epistle that Lot's righteous soul was tormented by the wickedness around him. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah uh, uh, seems to begin to feel sorry for himself, telling God, I'm the only one left. No one else serves you. I'm all alone here. Ever felt like that? Like you were drowning in a sea of wickedness? You want to obey God, but no one else is. Feels like you're swimming against the tide. Perhaps you want to do what's right at work, but you're ignored or ridiculed. Hey, you're making us look bad. Don't work so hard. Ever feel like you're in a place where no one wants to encourage you to do what's right? Perhaps uh, 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 it's not a coworker. Perhaps you feel isolated at school. If you speak up, if you identify as a Christian, other students begin to belittle you. Or maybe even a teacher might do that. Know this, you are not alone. The Spirit is always with you. And God has given you the church so that you are not alone. Not that just church in some universal sense, that's, that's wonderful to know that we're connected to saints all over the world but he's also given us the local church. 
a local body of believers, of people who know us, who care for us, who pray for us. And just being here together is an encouragement to one another that we are not alone. I remember uh, my first day of high school. I graduated from mainland, but uh, my freshman year was at Pleasantville. It was when uh, the high school was on Franklin Boulevard, that old, uh, I love that old building, three-story building. And it was my very first day, and I distinctly remember going down the stairs. There were downstairs and certain stairs that you could only go up on, and just, just this mass of students. And somehow I just, I just felt like I was in a dark place and all alone. And all of a sudden, coming the opposite direction in the hallway, once we got into the hallway, was a girl from, from our church who was in, I was in youth group with. And all of a sudden, I felt the, the weight lift from my shoulders. I'm not alone. There are other believers here. Ironically, that night was the night that I was baptized. Uh, at that time, we were a church in Pleasantville. We didn't have a baptismal tank, so we would meet at Mainland Assembly of God a couple of times a year during our midweek service and do baptisms. And what is baptism? But a sign of the covenant that you're part of a covenant community that you're part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of the family of God. It's interesting that in the New Testament, uh, that it seems to indicate that the sacraments, those reminders of who we are in Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are intended for the public gathering of the saints. They are public, corporate activities signifying our corporate identity in Christ. Each one of us is saved individually by faith in Christ, but as we are united to Christ, we are made one with Him and part of one another. We become part of the body. We become together the bride of Christ. It's interesting, in Ephesians 2, Paul lists three metaphors for the church. We're citizens of Christ's kingdom, we're the temple of the living God, and, and those are corporate identities. But uh, he says uh, this, that we are members of the household of God. We're part of that family. We tend to think of our salvation as a, a personal relationship with Jesus, and it is that. It is a personal relationship, but it is not a private relationship. It is a public relationship. Because as we have our personal relationship with Jesus, that puts us in a public relationship with His church. We are together the church. We are part of something that is beyond ourselves. We are children of the living God, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So often, we think about what we're saved from, sin and hell, but we don't give proper attention to what we're saved to, a life together in the local church. The local church is about family. It's a place of encouragement and care and accountability. We remind each other that we are not alone. In the last eight years, I've been in the hospital twice for a little over a week both times. Uh, In 2013, I had my gallbladder out, which they do out of office now, but it was pretty infected. And uh, they were going to do an arthroscopic, arthro, arth, how do you say that correctly? Arthroscopic. Uh, but they couldn't do it. Once they got to surgery, they realized uh, things were too infected and too mushy and kind of other disgusting stuff. Uh, I... I have an inch about, or I have a, a scar about six inches long. I could show it to you if you want. Uh, they literally cut my body open, stuck their hands in it, and pulled stuff out. I don't remember any of it. When I left the hospital then and then this past December, two things, both times, that I was overwhelmed. I thanked God for modern medicine, that they could cut me open. I don't know. I don't have to remember that. The second thing was the body of Christ. Knowing not just that people care, but I have a family in Christ that prays and wants to encourage me. This last December, there were just the boredom of the hospital. I spent a lot of time just texting guys in in growth groups. I have two different groups, uh, the guys I was texting. And they were just checking in, asking how I was doing and making fun of me. And so I figured if they're making fun of me, I guess I'm going to be okay. God uses our life together in a particular local church to encourage us and to grow us in our faith, in relationship. Now, I can say I love, I love Christians. I love Christians everywhere. It's easy to love people that you don't have to deal with every week, isn't it? With family, we're kind of stuck with each other. And so the wonderful thing about that is we get to put into practice all the things we say that we believe. In Changing Hearts, Changing Lives, I talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I am a perfect manifestation of all the fruit of the Spirit when I'm alone. I really do love myself. I do. 
I'm so patient with myself. I cut myself so much slack. But when we have to forgive one another, when we get hurt and we have to love in response, we get to live out the gospel. And that doesn't just build our faith, that's a proclamation to the world that the gospel is true. Now that corporate identity is to shape each day, but the fullest expression of this corporate reality is when we gather on the Lord's day. During the week, we have our, our lives in other places. We, uh, we live fairly independent of one another. You know, work, school, uh, home responsibilities. Even then, we're, we're praying for each other and encouraging each other in ways. But on Sunday, we stop those daily routines to have a taste of eternity. As we gather together before the throne with all the saints that went before us and with all the other saints in the world and we worship our King together and we hear God speak to us. We come to enjoy in tangible ways the fellowship we have with Christ and with one another. Sunday is not simply a day to come together and sing some Jesus songs and hear a lecture about God. We gather in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is present here this morning in our gathering in a way that He is not in any other way. And we hear God speak as the Word is preached by those properly examined and set apart for this work, and that's why we take it seriously, we are hearing God's authoritative voice speak into our lives. And here together we remind each other that we are part of the body together. In Hebrews 10, it says, Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging. Gathering is part of that encouragement. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of the Lord draw near. Our gathering in the weekly assembly is vital to our Christian life and growth. This should not be an optional day for you. Now, there are some that aren't here uh, because they're homebound. And there are some that aren't here uh, because of their vulnerability or they're still scared because of COVID. And that's understandable. And I'm thankful for streaming that those individuals that you can have an expression of this togetherness from a distance. But all things being equal, you should be here if you can be. Let me strongly encourage you, do not miss out on what God would have for you in the gathered assembly. By choosing not to be present simply because you don't want to put on pants. Let's be honest. We watch in our PJs with a cup of coffee. 
when we choose comfort or sports as the priority, I'm not saying there aren't times that we're not here. If you're camping in Alaska, you know, if you're in the wilderness, all right. But what's the norm for your life? What's the rhythm of your life normally? When you choose not to be here, you're missing out on God's best. This weekly gathering is God's gift to His bride for our growth and for our good so that we know that we are not alone. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that whatever was said that was not glorifying to you and encouraging, that you would let people just let go. But what has been said that is true to your character and to your word, that you would drive it home to each of us. That we, this morning, uh, may see your glory and have a renewed commitment uh, to you, to your word, and to one another. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.